This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I started to think, well, why are these people doing this? And it was many, many people. What is it in them that motivates this, this strong desire to connect to the divine? I told myself, I'm doing this as a journalist, you know, as an investigative reporter, because I am not religious. And in the end, that isn't what happened. Today, we're following travel writer Rosemary Mahoney on a remarkable quest, not in search of one particular thing or place, but in search of a fundamental aspect of humanity, our desire, our need to believe. In many ways, it doesn't matter what that is or how we label it. Call it a higher power, fate, reincarnation, karma, the universe, the divine. This is not a story about religion, particularly any one religion. There's no dogma here. It's a story about what precedes that. It's an investigation into the very essence of belief. And it all started one sunny afternoon in Greece when Rosemary stumbled upon a small but pretty extreme form of pilgrimage and asked herself a simple question that would go on to change her life forever. Why? And her quest for the answer ended up taking her around the world, from the Pyrenees to the burning ghats of Varanasi and beyond. And that's what we're going to find out about today. Are you ready? Let's go. Rosemary's book of this journey is called The Singular Pilgrim, Travels on Sacred Ground. It's a very deep and thoughtful book and goes into way more detail than we could fit into this episode. So if you like this episode, search it up wherever you get your books. You can also find more of her work on her website, rosemarymahoney.net. And if you're interested in the concept of spirituality, pilgrimages, or just generally questioning our world, we have a number of great episodes that explore that subject matter. Listen at the end for that list. But first, welcome back to Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best stories from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and I am so excited to go on this journey with you all today. But before we get started, I have a quick favor to ask of you. It makes such a huge difference to us when you subscribe to the show, so please hit that follow button. And if you can, please leave that glowing five-star review. Follow us on social at Armchair Explorer Podcast, or simply tell a friend who you think needs some escape and adventure in their life. If you like the show, if it's inspired you or made you think or even made you scream or cry, then the best way to give me a virtual fist bump is 
is to spread the word. It seriously makes a huge difference, so thank you for whatever you can do. Also, Armchair Explorer is now a part of APT Podcast Studios, and they have a number of excellent shows I really love. So check out aptpodcaststudios.com for all those you won't be disappointed. But for now, we have a long and winding journey, or six, ahead of us. So let's get started with Rosemary's Pilgrimages. Rosemary Mahoney was raised in Massachusetts, but she's lived around the world. And when this story began in the late 90s, she was traveling in Greece. And one day, on a whim, she decided to visit the small island of Tinos. Just a 20-minute ferry ride from Athens, Tinos is beautiful and serene, white buildings reflecting the shimmering sun off the sea. But this sleepy island is also one of the most important places to the Greek Orthodox Church because of a miracle that purportedly happened there. And on August 15th each year, pilgrims travel to this same church to celebrate the Feast of the Assumption, one of the largest pilgrimages in Greece. I didn't know any of this. I got on the ferry and went to Tinos, and I couldn't understand why the ferry was so crowded. There were a lot of old women dressed in black, and there was no place to sit. And when the boat arrived at the port and the gangplank dropped down, all these people literally ran off the ferry and fell onto the ground. And they proceeded to go on their hands and knees up to the church at the top of a hill, which is about, I would say it's maybe half a mile. Now this is August 15th, which is really hot. And I was quite shocked. And so I followed these pilgrims up to the church and it was, some of them actually rolled, lay down flat and rolled up the hill, all the way up the hill. And I I began to think, this is really extreme. This is wild. It was like a carnival. and. I started to think, well, why are these people doing this? And it was many, many people. What is it in them that motivates this, this strong desire to connect to the divine? And I learned some of the largest gatherings of human beings on earth. In fact, most of the largest gatherings of human beings on earth have to do with religion. For example, Mecca at Ramadan, places along the Ganges, Varanasi is one of them. The Kumela festival, millions of people go to that. Jerusalem during Easter week. And I realized then that, you know, religious devotion and the desire to express one's belief and one's faith is an incredibly motivating force. You know, it's probably the most motivating force amongst human beings, aside from money. Rosemary's personal relationship with religion was complicated, having been raised by a devout Catholic mother. Religion was something that had been all around her, but she'd never really felt it. In her teenage years, she wrote in her journal, I'm too forgetful to pray, and I fool with religion as though it's some kind of game to be resumed when I have the urge. But then, seeing those pilgrims falling on the ground, crawling up the hill on their hands and knees, something rekindled in her. Not to follow suit, not to suddenly get religion, but to understand, to bridge the strict devout upbringing of her childhood with the agnostic questioning of her adult life. To make sense of it all on a personal level, but also on a far grander scale. 
And so she decided to embark on six different religious pilgrimages all around the world. I had a lot of sort of political problems with the religion that I was raised in, and eventually I dropped it. But what I saw in my mother was that she had a quite a difficult life. And what I saw was that her religious faith gave her enormous strength. And I kind of envied that and I admired it. It's akin to hope, you know. Hope is something we all need in order to get through. Hope, hope is also vulnerable, it's easily dashed. And when hope is dashed, it's very upsetting. You know, I always sort of wanted to be a believer, but never quite could come around to it. So I embarked on these pilgrimages out of pure curiosity and to see if I could learn what did these other people know that I didn't know. Her first stops were both Christian sites, each known for apparitions of the Virgin Mary. First, she visited the English village of Walsingham, where both Catholic and Anglican processions march annually down winding streets to worship at the shrine of the Virgin Mary. Then she visited the French town of Lourdes, where an unassuming cave grotto draws thousands of Christian pilgrims each year to bathe in its holy waters. But what she witnessed didn't feel particularly holy. It felt intensely human. In Walsingham, Protestants swarmed the parades, protesting the idolatry and the worship of Mary. Even in Lord, terse attendants ushered pilgrims in and out of tubs of holy water with cold, efficient, mechanical precision. Neither place held the same spark she'd witnessed that day in Tinos. It was time to try something different. And so while her first two pilgrimages had dealt with intense religiosity and idolatry, she wanted to find a pilgrimage that embodied pure humanity. One of the things that inspired me to do this was that after I saw the pilgrimage at the island of Tinos in the Cyclonic Islands, I read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. It's about pilgrims who go to Canterbury and they come from all over the UK. And it's so human you know, the adventures that people have and the bodiness of it and people having sex and people cheating each other and just trying to make a buck. It's fantastic. And that's what I found in, particularly with the, the walk to Santiago. It's like a big a party. The Camino de Santiago, also known as the Way of St. James, is a network of pathways leading to the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain, where it is rumored that the remains of St. James are buried. The Camino ends in Compostela, but it begins in several places. The most popular route begins in southern France, but pilgrims journey on foot as many as 1,500 kilometers to reach the shrine. This promised to be a different sort of pilgrimage, not just one site to visit or one event to witness, but an entire process to undertake. The promise you make when you get your pilgrim's passport is that you will never take a ride, that you'll, you promise to walk the whole way and that at each stop, there are now refugios where you can, it's like a hostel where you can spend the night. And some are in ancient monasteries, some are in just people's houses. And whoever gets there first at the end of the day gets a bed. And it usually it's a bunch of pilgrims sleeping in the same room on little cots. 
And at every stop, you get that pilgrim's passport stamped, and it becomes kind of a, you know, a competition to see who can get the most stamps. The concept of walking and its role as an essential element of the pilgrimage itself develops early on. In medieval times, when Compostela became known as a holy site, most pilgrims wishing to visit were poor and couldn't afford to take a horse or carriage across Europe to visit. And so they did what they could afford to do. They walked. The suffering of it was part of the mortification of the flesh, the, the penitential aspect, but also it was a tremendous amount of fun. You would camp out, you would meet people along the way, characters, and have adventures. And that is now as much the draw for that pilgrimage as any religious purpose. I mean, I met people on that trail. I walked from southern France to Compostela, and that was about almost 500 miles. And I met Jews, Muslims, and they all had different reasons for doing it. Some wanted to, you know, meet a new partner. Some wanted to lose weight, do it to lose weight. Some just liked, you know, roughing it. I met a Japanese guy who was a hairdresser in Tokyo. And when I asked him, why are you doing this pilgrimage? Because it's a Christian pilgrimage. I said, why are you doing this? And he said, I want to get ideas for new hairstyles. <laughs> you know? I mean, anybody can do that pilgrimage. It's not restricted just to Christians, but it is it's a fantastic adventure. And it began in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, a small village in southern France and the start of the most popular route known as the Camino Francaise. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The morning I set off, it was terribly rainy, and I didn't have much with me. I realized that as compared to other pilgrims, I was carrying very little. You know, I had a couple of pairs of underwear that I could wash at night and hope they were dry in the morning. 
and I had a tent and a little sleeping pad. So I set off in the rain following the the path. I was totally soaked. It was raining incredibly heavily. The Pyrenees are, you know, a deep forest and I was climbing up the side of a valley and I was going along a road and I came to a gas station and I went into the gas station and I said, I don't suppose you have any umbrellas for sale? And he said, no. And so I went outside and there, <laughs> there happened to be an open umbrella just lying sort of on the pavement outside the gas station. And I said, is that your umbrella? And he said, no, it isn't. So I sat down and I waited to see if anybody would come back and take it. And finally, I got impatient and I just thought, oh, fuck it, just take it. So I started off my pilgrimage to Holy Santiago by stealing an umbrella. Rosemary quickly fell into a rhythm. In the darkness of each pre-dawn morning, the hostels became a flurry of activity as the earliest risers stuffed their sleeping bags into their backpacks and zipped up their windbreakers. By the time the sun was beating down on their faces, they'd hiked for miles. Rosemary began to remember familiar faces along the way. She met a French traveler who was passionate about honeybees and another who loved glass blowing. She trekked through pouring rain and enjoyed blue sky days. She writes, the earth was the rich brown of chocolate cake, and there were olive trees and apple trees and pear trees heavy with fruit, and the air and the blackberry bushes were full of yellow butterflies. She often became lost, and every time she was prodded in the right direction, usually by a group of elderly Spanish women waving and gesticulating in the right direction with their canes, until eventually she crossed into the winemaking regions of northern Spain. Here, fountains and town squares literally ran red with fresh wine, and vineyard workers handed freshly plucked grapes directly to the pilgrims as they passed. Going over the highest point, it actually snowed, and it was really quite beautiful. And then from that point, you can look down, and at a great distance, you could see the sea. And it was fabulous. And the weather was very variable. You'd have rain one day and beautiful sun the next day. And the walnut trees, the walnuts were ripe, so you could pick fresh walnuts along the way. And I mean, at that time, it still struck me. Northern Spain still struck me as very rural. We did have to go through a couple of small cities, but it was kind of idyllic at that time. And then, of course, I remember arriving in Santiago and the celebration and how I went to this hostel. I think it had been, it was now a disused hospital. And I remember arriving at about four o'clock in the afternoon and just lying down on the bed with my boots still on and falling into a heavy sleep and then getting up and going out and having dinner with some people I had met way back in Pamplona. There was also a lot of drinking at night in the in the hostels. You know, there were little cafes along the way that would serve ham and bread and beer and wine, and people would be buying these very inexpensive bottles of new wine and sharing them. And there was a lot of it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of hilarity, and you know, you would make friends with people over the period of a couple of days and then lose them, and then you'd meet up again with them a week later in another town. And it was like you know, meeting a family member. 
There was a lot of very good feeling there. There were also occasionally I met people who were extremely depressed and were very religious and were doing this out of some penitential need. So, I mean, it wasn't all hilarity. Rosemary pushed herself hard. She only had a month to complete the Camino, so she walked about 21 miles a day at an intense pace. It was grueling, rewarding, and at the end, surprisingly emotional too. It wasn't terribly religious in aspect until I came to the end, uh, where the pilgrims who have arrived that day attend a mass, and everybody's tired and in pain, And there is a mass in West Ceremony in which the names of the pilgrims who arrived that day are read out loud, and they're from all over the world. And when I heard my name, Rosemary Mahoney, New York, walked from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, it was very moving. It was a very communal feeling. Some people cheat. They take the bus. They take a taxi. You know, I didn't. I vowed, as a journalist, I said, I can't, I'm not going to cheat. I have to do this the way it's supposed to be done. From struggling through rains and stealing umbrellas, working through debilitating shin splints, laughing and talking, and fighting and making amends, she was finally done. Next on her list was perhaps the most famous religious site in existence, the source of several major religions, including the two largest in the world, the Holy Land in Israel. One of the most beautiful places I have ever been is Lake Kinneret, which is the Sea of Galilee. It it isn't really a sea, it's a desert lake, like you'd see in Nevada. Extremely beautiful, this place. And when I did the trip across the lake, there was nobody else on the lake, just a couple of fishermen. To say I rode across the Sea of Galilee, that sounds like a great feat. It wasn't, it's a lake, it took me, I don't know, five or six hours to get across it. There was no wind, you know, very calm. And I camped out on a beach on the other side below the Golan Heights. But one thing that happened when I was rowing across was that suddenly these Israeli, I think they were Israeli Air Force fighter jets flew in formation very low over the water. You know what that's like when you hear those jets and they absolutely scream across the sky. You know, and it was scary. There was a lot of strife that I witnessed in these holy places. Then the Muslims conflicting with the Christians and conflicting with the Jews. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, I was amazed at what was going on there. It was just before the millennium and the five, I think it's five different religions who have shrines in that church were fighting over who would be allowed to hold the key to the door. I mean, serious fighting. And I went to Bethlehem, very close to New Year's Eve, 1999. Yasser Arafat happened to be in a mosque in Bethlehem, speaking from the, he was in the mosque and I think he was speaking with a loudspeaker and the mosque was surrounded by military with assault weapons. And at the same time, a lot of Christians were going to the Christian church there I had actually intended to camp out in a field in Bethlehem, but it was so tense and stressful, I was afraid. I was afraid there would be a terrorist attack. And I witnessed that in several places. 
If Walsingham with its religious clashes over idol worship felt tense, Israel was on another level. Rosemary's mother, devoutly Catholic, had always emphasized that religion for her was about the learnings, the wisdom, and the way it inspired your life. Faith was a form of personal serenity, hope, and even love. But here in this so-called Holy Land, what she saw was the opposite. Since 1987, more than 14,000 lives have been lost to the Israel-Palestine conflict. Belief here is a battleground, fighter jets and machine guns at what are supposedly the most sacred sites on earth. And so for her fifth pilgrimage, she sought out another part of the world, a place that while incredibly religious, was built on a completely different system of belief. Varanasi is considered the holiest spot in India. It's based right on the Ganges at a kind of a curve in the river. And Hindus believe that it's in that spot that the world began and in that spot the world will eventually end. And they also believe that the Ganges, that the origin, mythologically the origin of the Ganges came from the sky and with such force that it would kill us all if Shiva didn't filter it through his matted hair. The water of the Ganges is considered extremely holy. And so this spot is a great destination for Hindus from all over India. They go there to bathe in the river, to swim in it, and to pray there and to visit the shrines. The city, it's a very low city, and they're all along the river. I think there are 12 ghats. These are basically piers with stairs, many stairs that lead down to the edge of the river. And there are houses at the top of the stairs and temples. And it's quite a fantastic sight when you first arrive there because the ghats are crowded with Hindu pilgrims dressed in beautiful robes and beautiful colors. There are always a lot of people doing laundry on the ghats, beating their laundry against the stones of the ghats and then stringing them up in great long lines, colorful, colorful saris and long cloths. Just very, very beautiful. And in the mist in the morning and in the evening light, seeing people praying and washing themselves very carefully in the river, it, it's, it's very moving, it's very striking. And there are also beautiful ceremonies where candles are lit and people are chanting and throwing flower garlands onto the surface of the river and little lights, like little tea lights, floating down the river. I had never seen any other place like it. Varanasi presented what Rosemary called a host of arresting sights, intimately human and coarsely animalistic, she writes. I saw a solitary naked pot-bellied toddler wallowing in a pile of cow dung, scores of Hindu pilgrims standing waist deep in the Ganges, fervently praying, ringing bells and burning incense, a dog gnawing greedily at the carcass of a goat floating at the edge of the river, and standing on the banks of the Ganges, listening through this cacophony of pealing bells, chanted prayers and shouted conversations, she took in this throbbing, living portrait of humanity. You can sense the cremation gats long before you see them, she writes. The air grows thicker and quieter, and smoke hangs over the river in a bluish veil. It's one of the few places in the world where you can witness 
actual human cremations on bonfires. A lot of Hindus from around India go to Varanasi expressly to die because it's believed that if you die in Varanasi and you're cremated there, you are released from the pattern of reincarnation. You never have to be reincarnated again. And so Hindus go there to die and the world's tourists go there to watch them doing it. I felt very self-conscious watching these cremations at the Cremation Ghat. It's a very moving experience as you see the families. They have to buy the wood and the wood is expensive. So the wealthier families can t afford to do a full cremation and they hire attendants to take care of it. Less wealthy people can't afford as much wood, so they settle for having their loved one half cremated, and then the what remains is actually thrown into the river. And the very poor people just don't do a cremation at all. They actually throw the dead human bodies directly into the river. And people were drinking it because, you know, it's a, an honor to drink the Ganges water in that place and to swim in it and to bathe in it. And I saw people bathing with the carcasses of dead water buffalo floating by and even pieces of human remains. Rosemary's guide at the Cremation Gap explained that the fires at Varanasi were said to have been lit during the time when the gods themselves walked on Earth. Today, prime ministers in New Delhi are often cremated with flames imported from Varanasi, and thousands of other people go to great lengths to bring their loved ones to these pyres. But Rosemary found it difficult to focus. She writes, It was something I had never seen before. It was something I'd never imagined I would see. It was spectacular and unnerving. And the raw reality of it momentarily overwhelmed its history and meaning. The ceremony I found very moving. Only men are allowed at the cremation gats because the idea is that the sound of crying will bring the human soul back to earth, which you, you don't want. I remember seeing a family with two sons, probably in their 20s. The men shave their heads out of respect for the dead and they dress all in white and they light the fire with a torch and then they sit by and they watch the body burn. It is said that when the body is burning, when the heat gets very intense, that's when the soul is released into the afterlife. And I remember seeing one of these young men crying and trying not to cry. And it struck me as very moving, but I also felt very self-conscious sitting there among other tourists a lot of people taking photos, and it seemed to me that this was a little bit ghoulish. As she watched, she wondered whether the Hindu mourners around her shared a similar unease with the subject, but she suspected they didn't. In the West, we flinch at the idea of death, cringing from it in fear, preferring to look the other way and deny it until we draw our last breath. The sickly and elderly are cast aside, confined to sterile hospital rooms and nursing homes. Our entire culture is geared towards looking younger and delaying death. It's a way of sanitizing it. But, Rosemary believes, in doing that, we lose something important too. 
But here, with the crackling flames illuminating the skulls of the deceased, there is no room for euphemisms. The thing about Varanasi is there's a, there's a lot of death and poverty, and there are, at least when I was there, there were lepers in the streets and a lot of visible suffering and filth. But at the same time, it's incredibly beautiful. And I ended up loving it, though at first I found it a bit shocking. You know, seeing one leper pushing another legless leper in a wheelbarrow down the street. Or another leper who had no arms going on his, his hands and the stumps of his arms down the street very cheerfully. A lot, a lot of cheerfulness among these clearly suffering people. I mean, there's a, there's a mood there of sort of uh, acceptance. I think a lot of it is precisely the religious belief. This life is just one step on the way to nirvana. Suffer through it and you'll get on to the next thing. It is a, it is a belief in a next life. We suffer the way all human beings suffer. We suffer pain, you know, because of illness and various things. But I think we suffer that sort of spiritual disconnection. And I think what the important thing is, in a place like Varanasi, people are constantly thinking about their spirituality, constantly thinking about the brevity of life and what does life really mean. The more developed countries, we are very attached to material objects, houses and cars and, you know, technology. And it ends up being a bit hollow. There is a, a, th a practice that Buddhists do. I think every morning when you wake up, you should think, this may be the day that I die. And once you realize that you could die today, all these material things and the, and the struggle for wealth become far less important. Rosemary was beginning to understand a different kind of spirituality than the dogmatic one her Catholic school had taught her, or the pseudo-spirituality of materialism so rampant in the United States and the West. This other form of belief, this almost corporeal spirituality, instead derived its meaning from mindfulness, the practice of intentionally inhabiting the body and the mind in each moment, and in contrasting each moment with the ever-ticking clock of mortality, each moment became elevated and significant. Her final pilgrimage would push her even further into her own bodily awareness. This was the seriously and distinctly non-touristy St. Patrick's pilgrimage. It takes place on an island in Loch Derg in County Donegal. Very, very, very small island that kind of looks from a distance like Ellis Island, a tiny island with institutional buildings on it and a church, really small. And you get there by boat. It takes, you know, 10 minutes to get there by boat. It is believed that it was a monastery that was founded by St. Patrick in the late 5th, early 6th century. And nobody knows whether that's actually true, but it was a place where monks went to fast and to pray and to punish their bodies in penitence. And then in medieval times, apparently there was a cave on this island that was said to be, when you went into it, you would have the experience of what purgatory was like. 
it was actually like going in and dying. And some people would have their funeral rites delivered before they went into the cave and they would see visions and come out as if they had been resurrected. And in modern times, it's a pilgrimage that basically you go there for three days and two nights. And the moment you arrive, you take off your shoes and you are required to go barefoot for the whole three days that you're there. And you're not allowed to sleep for the first 24 hours. And you must spend the entire 24 hours circling the island at various little shrines and patterns, praying the whole time that you're there, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, and the Apostles' Creed. Over and over and over again, you have to stand in front of a cross and cross yourself a certain number of times. And there's a required number of prayers that you have to do to succeed at this. And it can be very cold and rainy. You're not allowed to eat anything, except for once a day they give you oat rusks and coffee or tea, and that's it. So it's fasting, it's going barefoot, and it's praying. And then at midnight there's a mass, and you go in and you attend the mass, and then you go out again in the dark, circling these stones and these shrines. It's absolutely crazy. There was a point when in the middle of the night where I thought, I can't do this, this is, why did I do this? This is so stupid, I'm not even a believer. This is horrible, I'm gonna die. And you know, some people cave in and they go in and they lie down on the bed that's been appointed to them and it's, it's a failure for them. But I thought, you know, I must complete this and you start to become delirious. And toward dawn of the second day, you actually start to feel good. Like it's a test of your own stamina. And by the end of it, I was delighted that I had done it. And I actually found it the most moving of all the pilgrimages. It, get, it was a form of meditation, praying over and over again and saying the same words over and over again. You start to go into a kind of a trance. And in some weird way, I found it very moving and very fulfilling. This was the separation from earthly worries that Rosemary had been so curious to experience. The same detachment she'd witnessed on that first day at Tinos as pilgrims threw themselves onto rocky slopes under the beating sun. That wild and unhesitant surrender. It's a way of getting rid of the ego, which is constantly in our ways. And the belief that we have some kind of power to control our lives, when in the end, we don't really, in the greater scheme of things, we're really tiny. When you think about the size of the universe, we're a speck of dust. But I do think it is when you challenge yourself like that and you do a repetitive kind of exercise or practice, it's a way of understanding who the self really is. You learn something about yourself and you become very vulnerable it's also a way of emptying your mind of all the things that vex you and torment you in your daily life. And the voices in your head that are constantly criticize the self, at least they do in my head, and the insecurities. It's just a way of removing yourself from all of that. And that, that's the success of that kind of penitential pilgrimage. I actually found it 
very successful. By the end of it, when I was leaving there, I felt an incredible calm. And it wasn't about being in touch with Jesus Christ or the Virgin Mary. It was somehow about being in touch with myself. And I think, you know, there's a lot of malaise in a place like the United States because we have been so immersed in a modern kind of technological life, we haven't found a way to remove ourselves from that. If you're willing to remove yourself from the daily thing, if you're willing to go to a place that has no internet for a week, you can't help but become more in touch with who you are and what's going on inside you, rather than what's going on outside you, what's going on in the rest of the world. I think that's really it. If you're willing to take a risk and take yourself out of the comfort of the daily life you're living and challenge yourself a little bit. St. Patrick's Purgatory was not just a pilgrimage to place, Rosemary writes. It was a psychic sauna filled with the steam from your own person. On her way back to Dublin, she struck up a conversation with an Irish woman on the bus. And when the woman asked what she thought of her experience at St. Patrick's, Rosemary considered the question. It was hard, she said. Anything else? The woman asked, and Rosemary answered. It was amazing. When I first decided to do these pilgrimage and write the book, I told myself I'm doing this as a journalist, you know, as an investigative reporter. I'm going to immerse myself in these things and be an observer. Because I am not religious and wasn't then, Even though I vow to do what I am expected to do on these pilgrimages, I'm doing it as an observer and as an outsider. And I'm going to write my responses to that probably with skepticism, you know, as my skeptical, slightly cynical self. And in the end, that isn't what happened. I really got into these pilgrimages. I participated and I felt them. Maybe not religiously, but I did feel the power of spirituality. And I felt it in other people, too. And that great desire for belief in something more powerful than we are, I felt that a lot. And I, you know, at certain points I succumbed to that. As much as I resisted it, I succumbed to it. And so that's what I meant when I said that I ended up writing something that I never expected to write. What I found that was that my in doing these pilgrimages, my respect for spirituality, even my own spirituality, grew enormously. She hadn't come away from her quest a devout Catholic, a converted Hindu, even an atheist. She was ready to keep figuring out what exactly she was. My question had always been how to believe and what form belief should take, if any, she writes. I wanted belief to have a solid shape. I wanted to take the rough edge of doubt and make it smooth. But faith would not come to me in the form of a yes or no answer. It was ongoing, organic, a process. And that was the greatest gift of her pilgrimages. Not finding answers, but finding comfort in the process of looking, deriving meaning from the act of examining her own thoughts. This process was laced with a complex and beautiful range of emotions. She felt skeptical yet understanding, intrigued yet angry, tempted and joyful and surprised. She felt human and vibrantly alive. 
I think religion and religious pilgrimage is what it's really all about is the fact that we all know we're going to die. And even now, after being human beings for, you know, how many thousands of years, millions of years, we still have no idea what will happen after death. That mystery is vexing and also compelling. And so human beings obviously had to create some reason for this existence, an existence which can be both beautiful and glorious and also extremely difficult. And I think we all would like to believe that death is not the end, that it's just blackness and a, and a dial tone. We'd like to believe that there is something better that's going to happen. I think that something better is going to happen. That's my personal opinion. Just because if it's nothing, when life becomes difficult, why wouldn't we just end it all and be done with it, right? And end and the suffering. We don't because we are driven to survive. So, you know, I think that's in all the various religions and all the various kinds of pilgrimages, that's really what's at the heart of it. So it's a shared inspiration and a shared motivation. Every human culture that has ever existed has had some concept of the divine, the great mystery, however you define that. Belief is in our DNA. It's part of what makes us human. Victor Hugo wrote in Les Miserables that to love another person is to see the face of God. And perhaps that is what sits at the core of belief. The desire not to feel alone in this universe, whether that's through a connection to a higher power or simply to the other human beings around us. Perhaps that connection is the deepest meaning to life that we all search for. Or maybe it's something else entirely. We all have to define it for ourselves. Belief is active. Spirituality, like pilgrimage, is found in the act of seeking itself. Thank you so much to Rosemary Mahoney for sharing her incredibly thoughtful reflections with us. This is not an easy subject to discuss, and she does it with poise and intelligence and grace. Find her at rosemarymahoney.net and find her book, The Singular Pilgrim, wherever you find books. She's a fantastic writer and there is so much to this immensely complex subject and stories that we didn't have time to explore. So I highly recommend picking up a copy, especially from your local bookstore. And if you did enjoy this episode and want to explore some similar ones, check out our episode on trekking Japan's grueling 750-mile Shikoku pilgrimage with writer Paul Barrack. We also did an episode with Ginny Reddy about her experience undertaking a five-day solo vision quest alone and disconnected from the world on a remote mountaintop in the Pyrenees. It's pretty cool. And finally, check out The Last Dance of the Sand Bushman. This is one of my favorite episodes where the filmmaker Ben Call witness and documented ancient musical rituals of a group of sand elders in the Kalahari Desert. So thank you so much for listening and don't forget to share this show with your friends. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Armchair Explorer Podcast and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. It just takes a moment and it really does a huge favor that enables us to keep producing this show for you. And don't forget to visit aptpodcaststudios.com for more on their shows as well. 
So until next time, keep asking the universe why. Keep defining things for yourself. Keep seeking. And don't be afraid to stare life and death right in the face. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. This episode was produced by Armchair Productions. Find our other shows at armchair-productions.com. Armchair Explorer is a part of APT Podcast Studios. Our theme music was written by the artist Sweet Chap. Jenny Allison wrote and co-produced the show along with me. And Charles Tyree did the audio editing and sound design. I'm Aaron Miller. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.